Hey, everybody, and welcome back to Off the Couch on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. And once again, we are broadcasting this episode from our home here in the Gunnison Valley of Colorado. And now would be a good time to start planning a trip here to experience our wide open spaces and do some running or hiking or biking on our vast network of trails here in Gunnison and Crested Butte. And I want to give you a current pro tip. The phenomenal trail system of Hartman Rocks is already very runnable and rideable. So bring your running shoes or your hiking shoes or your biking shoes and come check out Hartman's in Gunnison and you can thank me later. Okay, our guest today is Nellie Vasquez Roland, who, in addition to just being incredibly impressive all around, is an avid runner and is also the co-founder and president of A Safe Haven, which is a Chicago-based nonprofit whose goal is to end homelessness by providing permanent housing solutions to help people on the path to self-sufficiency. Now, couple things here. First of all, I'm going to need you to pay close attention to this conversation today because Nellie and I cover a lot of ground because the work that A Safe Haven is doing is incredibly comprehensive and it's a model that can, and I believe should, be replicated in many other cities around our country and around the world. Now, I know that's a big claim, but please listen to this conversation and then judge for yourself. Okay, second, A Safe Haven puts on a run every year to raise awareness of and raise donations to combat homelessness. And you can learn more about this event at runtoendhomelessness.org. So we will include links in the show notes to this episode to runtoendhomelessness.org and to asafehaven.org. And we will also include a link to Nellie's book, which is out and it's called Healing. And with that, I am now very pleased to be able to share with you my recent conversation with Nellie. Here we go. Well, Nellie, nice to be speaking with you. And I understand you just got back from a run this morning. Yes, I did. Jonathan, um, what I've learned is during this pandemic in the first six months when they shut down you know, my, my health club, um, that I had no choice but to start running every single day as my exercise plan. And for the first six months, I really didn't, to be honest with you. And I felt it mentally. I felt it physically. And, you know, I knew that, you know, I had to get back to my running. And uh, ever since, you know, I get up every morning and run two miles. And it's the way I start my day. And it feels good. Hmm. All right. Tell me, you know, I'm from Chicago originally. And so tell me a little bit about your route. Uh, the good news is, um, my routes are never boring. <laughs> I take different routes, right? So I run along the lakefront. Uh, I run through uh, trails. You know, I, I run in front of, you know, the neighborhood. Uh, so, and one of my favorite things to do is look for routes that have a few hills, you know. So I think it's really good uh, to have a little bit of a challenge in Chicago. You know, we don't have a whole lot of hills. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, I do look for them uh, intentionally, you know, when I'm looking for that extra 
or work out. But yeah, I take pictures sometimes when I go on my runs because, as you know, I produce a run, walk to end homelessness every year. And at least once a week, I try to post a picture of myself running with a different scenery in my background. In fact, I just got back from a trip to Mexico uh, and um, ran along the uh, beach and uh, took some nice pictures there. So no excuses, folks. <laughs> and you just said running in Chicago. Let me tell you, this winter was brutal. Huh. And I went out there and I was uh, bundled up a little more, but still got it done. And uh, I've never really run in the winter because I've always been a little, you know, prima donna. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I learned, I learned, you know, to tough it up a little bit, you know, for the sake of my mental health. And of course, you know, staying in shape. So huh. yeah. You know, just for the record, choosing not to run outside in Chicago in the winter, I don't think that qualifies you as a prima donna. I think you're a far away. <laughs> yeah, that's that's uh, it's like the flip. Anybody who's doing that, running in outside in the winter in Chicago, that's uh, I think that certifies you as a badass. I think that's All basically. Right. Yeah, Thank yeah. you very so, much, Jonathan. I've been waiting yeah. for someone to tell me that. My husband has not agreed yet, but I'm going to say I'm going to say Jonathan just yep. declared it. Yep. So there you go. That's right. <laughs> Thank you. Well, so we're here today to talk about a couple of things. You just mentioned this upcoming event uh, in July, um, but let's back up for a second and talk a bit about a safe haven. And so, why don't we, you know, why don't you give us sort of the quick elevator pitch on this, uh, you know, and then we're going to talk, you know, and get real expansive about what all is going on here. But yeah, so short, short answer to the question, what is a safe haven? Yeah. A Safe Haven is a place that my husband and I founded back in 1994. Um, you know, we identified really the tip of the spear of the opiate epidemic and the homeless epidemic and uh, decided that what we needed to do is really create a place where people can come to, get all their underlying issues addressed in a way that was truly meaningful and uh, help them get back on their feet with jobs and permanent housing. So we process uh, through our system about 5,000 people a year. And not everybody makes it, but the vast majority of people do. So at the uh, the bottom line is, you know, we address and heal the root causes of poverty and homelessness. Hmm. Big task. That sounds mm -hmm. like a big project. And it's something you've been, as you just said, working on since 1994. So... Um, now I'd love to hear you sort of just talk about, you said you identified this problem. How does one even go about beginning, you know, to address this in the way that you've just described? And did you have any kind of particular educational background along these lines? Or was this just like, hey, you know, we're somebody, we see a problem, let's go figure out how to, how to help. Well, that's a good question, Jonathan. Um, you know, there's always a why, right, when people take on um, major challenges. And uh, to answer your question, um, yes and no. I mean, uh, we had lived experience, right, in our own families and having had, uh, you know, been um, challenged with the issues of poverty and, and not necessarily homelessness, but addiction, you know, which could have very easily have spiraled into homelessness if we didn't have the resources and the opportunity to get access to the type of support systems that were needed you know, to help transform, you know, uh, the delivery system for us personally. And, um, you know, thankfully, um, we both, my husband and I both grew up in poverty-like situations and, you know, 
first generation immigrants, you know, him from Ireland and my family from Mexico. And, you know, we were very close to the problem in our communities. And uh, thankfully, and in our own family. So thankfully, you know, we were given the opportunity to go to college. And that's where we actually we met. Mm-hmm. And uh, I actually went, watched him and went with him uh, through the process of recovery. He was in personally impacted with the issue of substance abuse after he had returned from the military. And, um, and that's where, you know, we really learned and understood, Jonathan, that for the very first time, we found out that the issue of substance abuse, according to the American Medical Association, and the World Health Organization had been declared a disease. And uh, for us, you know, uh, fast forward, we graduated, went into the world of finance, built uh, substantial, very successful careers in finance very early on. And uh, we were grateful for the opportunity, but we realized that so many people that we knew uh, that weren't afforded the opportunities because of those underlying issues, it was important to us to, uh, as we started to have children, to give back and to consider, you know, making a difference right in our lives and uh, we were thankfully in a position to finally do that and um, you know we realized that as we were doing some research to help people that may be struggling with substance abuse issues as we had stumbled on the fact that you know as a federal government we had just passed laws to strengthen you know the uh, the the laws against those that were suffering from substance yep. abuse, which felt really, really wrong to us yep. because we knew that if it's a disease, then why are we approaching it as a moral, corrupt and criminal justice issue? And why are we incentivizing states to build more prisons to prepare for the influx of people that were going to be entering the system instead of investing in treatment? So when we did the math, we looked at the war on drugs and we looked at the budgets on the war on drugs and we found out that 97 cents of every dollar was going to what I consider uh, supply reduction, right? So going after the drug drug dealers, the cartels and incarcerating people and and things like that and building prisons and only about 3% of every dollar was going towards treatment. So it was a little flip-flop to us and uh, we felt we had to right the ship. And if it was just two people doing a little something for a few people, we thought, well, it's better than nothing. Hmm. But that just grew and grew and grew and here we are today, you know, uh, all in, you know, uh, and trying to continue continue to raise awareness and support for this cause. Huh. So that something you just said at the very end there, we thought even if we could just make a small difference for a few people, is that truly what the initial vision was back in say, you know, maybe 1992, 1993, just before the official launch of a safe haven in 1994? Oh, yeah. In fact, no, the original plan was to make a donation. <laughs> so, so we were looking for an organization that was, you know, aligned with our values and said, who's really doing this huh. right, right? Who's really crushing it? Who's out there? And they're not just feeding someone and walking away, or they're not just giving some place, a place for people to sleep at night, and then having them leave the place at seven in the morning only to come back at seven at night if there was room. And, uh, and that's what we found. And even when we saw that in the private sector with philanthropy, um, we also saw it in the public sector, that we were creating systems that were, um, well-intended, and they're designed to feed people like SNAP, for example, which is the Supplemental you know, Nutrition Assistance Program, which is like welfare. Uh, and then there's also the public housing programs, you know, and money for job training. But we thought, you know, if people are hungry and they've got that, that's good. If they have a place to sleep, that's good. But who's connecting the dots with all those services so that we're ultimately connecting, you know, creating a path for them to uh 
end up, you know, really realizing their potential. And, uh, and we realized that it was very fragmented and very disjointed. And, you know, for all taxpayers, very unsustainable and very expensive, you know, so as these systems were growing, there was no plan uh, for, uh, again, moving people out of these systems. So we just looked at it and followed the money and said, you know, this is really not only uh, impacting the lives of individuals that have these issues that aren't solvable per se, but the issues of substance abuse, you know, we always say that it's manageable, right? You have a disease. We know that, you know, you have this, right? Uh, now that we know that, let's learn how to live with it and let's learn how to manage it, right? Uh, and learn how to live in recovery, which is what my husband has been doing for 30 years. So basically following his example, you know, as the blueprint in terms of, you know, what was it that he needed and how can we offer this to more people, you know, really became the, um, what informed our decision, you know, to start to do what we do but we just thought well you know so since we couldn't find an organization to make a donation to we decided well why don't we just buy a building uh we'll buy it in a community that's really distressed where most of this poverty situation exists we'll gut it we'll renovate it we'll turn it into the crown jewel we'll furnish it Hmm. and then we'll have people come and live there for free but we will give them rules right and we'll hire some people to help them out and then eventually you know we'll you know either rent these apartments or we'll sell them but you know we would have done the good deed that we had set out to do and, you know, continue with our day jobs. Hmm. Well, (laughs) Jonathan, you know, we opened up, you know, a Pandora's box. We had no idea that we would be experiencing, first of all, so much success with the people that we were helping, Hmm. right? Uh, But also um, so much demand, right? So as people started to hear the word on the street was, hey, there's this couple, they're letting people live there for free. You know, people were coming and knocking on our door and saying, you know, can I just sleep on the couch? Or can I sleep in the hallway? You know, I want to be a part of your program. Uh, We realized that this was bigger than us. You know, so we decided to, you know, figure out a way to uh, make it sustainable. After five years, we were doing it on our own, continuing uh, for five years. And then after five years, we realized we needed to really figure out how to get finance for this and maybe, you know, make a go of it and see if there's a way we can uh, make it so that it can help more people. But we had kind of this model that seemed to be working. And um and it was for us, Jonathan, I have no training in the world of psychology, I have no, you know, but for us, I took one psychology class. And the, the only thing I remembered in college was the hierarchy of needs Maslow's theory, right? Mm-hmm. Do you remember that? Yes, so of course. So for us, it was just really simple, like, hey, everybody needs food, right? Let's give them really healthy nutrition. Everybody needs a, a roof over their head. They need a sense of belonging, which is what started to happen there. And then after that, let's help design and customize a service plan so that if they need education, if they need treatment, if they need job training, you know, we're opening doors for those services, but also employment and permanent housing, which, you know, we could talk more about, but it just was, you know, all demand driven. You know, we didn't come in and say, hey, we've got this model. You've got to fit in this, you know, in this very specific, you know, system and follow step by step, you know, no, it's got to be really customized. And that's what we do. Okay. So this still seems huge and I, I, hearing you talk almost impossible. I mean, when you're dealing with really powerful substance addiction issues, so how are you, you, you said you had certain rules initially, right? So, Mm -hmm. and you still do, and I want to get into those and talk about, and maybe we'll just start there. So tell me a little bit about some of those initial rules. And then I'm curious how much those have evolved 
you know, since 1994, or if they've stayed remarkably consistent? Yeah, we've, um, we're pretty consistent, you know, with our uh, culture, you know, at the organization, you know, it, our goal is really um, abstinence based recovery, which is becoming very, very hard to find today. Hmm. You know, uh, as we've had the uh, opiate epidemic, you know, declared and funding has started to come down, you know, from the federal government to the states to the cities, you know, most of that funding, unfortunately, is really moving towards uh, strictly offering medical assisted treatment, you know, which is methadone or mm-hmm. suboxone, naloxone. And I believe that that is part of the recovery process for some people. But at a safe haven, it's not the norm, right? It's really kind of, you know, every once in a while, you do have people that we have to, you know, we've, we've got to go that route, uh, but we use it as a path you know, uh, if possible, and some people will always go that route. So, uh, but we do give people an opportunity to really learn, again, how to live in recovery. So it's pretty absence-based, which is really uh, a little combination with a little harm reduction, you know, uh, because we understand that relapses are part of the uh, process of recovery. So we're very forgiving in that. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, you know, our model is really designed uh, to help people, you know, understand the disease and learn how to uh, cope with those triggers and manage through them and how to work within a community for support. And uh, again, we've been extremely successful in helping people move through the system in a way that really helps them understand, first of all, hey, you're not a bad person. Society has beaten you down and you've gone to prison and you've been treated, you know, as, you know, almost a leper in society, right? But here at Safe Haven, it's a non-judgmental environment. And, you know, while we do have psychologists and we do have, you know, counseling and social workers working with you, it is clearly, you know, uh, designed to help you understand, you know, why you made those decisions that it was many cases of because you're under the influence and how you can actually learn, you know, from your mistakes and use them as your source of power. Right now, you know, and that brings strength. And, you know, in fact, you know, now you have compassion. Now you have empathy. Now you are someone that has a tremendous amount to give and offer the next guy. So it really is helping them use that as a as a strength instead of a crutch, right? And um, we just have amazing stories. I, th- I told you, Jonathan, before yeah. I have this book. Yeah. <laughs> called healing so if you weren't a believer before hopefully this book will you know obviously open our eyes to the fact that you know people can and do learn how to live in recovery and in this book called healing there's 12 uh, stories it's an anthology of of testimonials my authors all wrote their own stories and uh it's a beautiful journey for each and every one of them that truly shows people living in the depths of despair you know, I did not handpick these people. They volunteered, but I could not have handpicked better people. Hmm. Each and every one of them were chronically homeless. 10, 20, 30 years living on the streets, eating out of garbage cans, like the about as bad as it gets, in and out of prison. And today... They're graduating from college. They're reunited with their entire families who they've been estranged from for decades in many cases. And they're supporting themselves. They're paying taxes. They're uh, rising the corporate ladder. They're getting college degrees. They're entrepreneurs. Mm. There's three stories in this book that are entrepreneurs and three are veterans, right? So to me, uh, there's absolutely no doubt in my mind that if 
you know, if someone does not deserve to be homeless, it is absolutely the veterans. And that's my husband, who's also a veteran. So for us, they've always been very, very important to us as a a priority population. Uh, But all people are of value to us. And we view them with the mindset that there is inherent good in everyone, right? And there's inherent talent in everyone. But it's incumbent on us, if they're not in a position to do it, help them develop it, help them find it and help them develop it. We just get them to the runway. They do the rest in taking off and uh, and sky's the limit. Talk to us a little bit about, in a way, who would qualify to come into the safe haven program. So in other words, we've talked now about homelessness and we've talked about um, people with substance abuse issues. And so walk me through this a little bit. Would I sort of need to have both of those issues to reach out or, or tell me a bit about that? Yeah, the vast, you know, we probably have about 60, 65% of our population does have uh, substance abuse issues, but I'm glad you brought that up. We have people from all walks of life. Uh, we had, you know, one of the women in the story, for example, is a, is a woman who had seven, has, has seven children. Three of them are special needs. Huh. Her husband walked out on her. So she came in because she literally had nowhere else to turn. Uh, domestic violence is a big one uh, as far as why people end up at a safe haven. People that have just lost their jobs, you know, and didn't do anything wrong in life and have college degrees, but, you know, we're living uh, way beyond their means. Uh, I know in 2010, you know, right after the first recession, we did uh, we did a little um, report that showed that 54% of the people that we were serving in that year were people that had lost their jobs and had become homeless for the very first time. And we're living, you know, uh, a lifestyle, you know, that supported a very high income. Uh, that was supported by a very high income and, you know, and literally lost everything uh, and had to start over. And I know people listening today are no stories like that, right? Mm-hmm. So I think that, you know, um, you know, the good news is, you know, a safe haven is really by design able to really meet people where they're at. So there are people that come in that have grown up in some of the wealthiest parts, you know, of the city, the state, even the country, and have come to a safe haven, and we're able to really assess their situation and get them to the level of help that they need. So for example, some people did just come to a safe haven because they need a base, right? They need a place to sleep at night, they need a computer, Computer, they need uh, three meals a day, and they don't need our help with anything else. They're able to go out there and do inter- set up their own interviews, go out on you know, and do what they've got to do uh, to get back to where they want to be. Uh, others grow up in the south side of Chicago, the west side of Chicago, need everything. You know, we've got to start from. Uh, ground zero, right? Okay, they need a GED. <laughs> you know, they need treatment. Yep. They need job training, uh, and you know, they've got children, right? So we've got to take care of the children too. So an entire family can come to a safe haven if they need to. So it's uh, it's a when you ask about who we help, it's individuals, uh, maybe some coming from the criminal justice system. You know, if the, if if that's a background, that's more than welcome as long as they're not vi- nonviolent offenders. We do do background checks for violence, and we do. do background checks for sex offenders. Unfortunately, because we do have mixed populations and we have children on site, that's even illegal to have them in our building. So we can't offer any help to those individuals. So it is tough to find help for them, to be honest with you, because it is hard uh, to get funding for it too. So, uh, but beyond that, you know, 
uh, youth, uh, uh, veterans, women with children, single, you know, moms. Uh, so you name it, you know, people from, you know, all backgrounds. It's a melting pot at a safe haven. So it's really a beautiful thing to see uh, people that, you know, may have never crossed paths or become friends, you know, in a, in a natural, you know, uh, environment because they just wouldn't. Well, at a safe haven, you know, we have people that uh, may not get their the roommate they were uh, feeling that they would have the most in common with. But once they get a roommate, you know, that's a great opportunity to teach some conflict resolution <laughs> if there's any problems that do surface, right? So uh, it's been uh, wonderful to see, you know, what a harmonious uh, community we offer at a safe haven. So, you know, that's one of the things I'm really proud of is that, you know, I mean, if you're there, uh, if you're, if you think you were depressed, you know, if you were dealing with things that, like that, you know, uh, you will find a lot of camaraderie, you'll find a lot of support, you know, a lot of peer to peer. And one of the things that's kind of a special sauce for us too, is that when we started Jonathan A Safe Haven, we really had a hard time finding staff. So what we realized was since the people that we were serving faced so many barriers to employment, we decided to start a training program and started training people that came through our programs to become uh, people that actually serve the people that we were helping. And what better type of person to help you get through a problem or a situation than someone that's been through it themselves? Yep. Yeah. So you talked about opening up this first building in 1994. Where do things stand from an infrastructure point of view today? Oh, gosh, we have uh, about 40 real estate developments throughout the Chicagoland area. Wow. So we we offer what's called, I call it a continuum of housing. So we offer transitional housing for the most acute individuals that are like walking in the door, right? So we're saying, okay, you're, and it's a, the headquarters, the transitional housing is really the, the flagship. It's also where my office is, right? So we're not in some ivory tower somewhere. We're actually right at ground zero. And we get to see what's trending, like what's walking in the door, what's needed right now. I'll tell you, fentanyl is a big problem happening out there right now. Uh, if it's not happening yet, <laughs> it's coming to your neighborhood soon. It's bad. We've got to be aware of this. So anyway, so we have um, that transitional housing facility houses 400 people. We're always full at any given time. So that's where we do the full assessment. We do the physical assessment. We do the education assessment the uh, employment and you know work experience assessment, and then also uh, this center for all the social determinants, right? So, do they have behavioral health care issues? You know, a family, you know, issues, you know, uh, trauma. So all the things get assessed after the first two weeks, and in the meantime, they're getting three healthy meals a day. In the meantime, they're getting acclimated to the environment and learning about the rules and you know expectations and going to meetings, and uh, and then once we have that full assessment by all of our multidisciplinary professionals have to weigh in on this, we're able to design a plan for each individual. After that, they might get deployed to other locations. So we have locations that offer help for women and children programs exclusively at one of our other supportive housing locations. We also have locations that deal with people coming out of the criminal justice system exclusively. We also have programs for veterans that are exclusive for their for their uh, their program. So it, um, it really is... Um, 
uh, again, the supportive environment is ongoing. They can live there as long as it takes, as long as they continue to make progress, and even f- forever if they if they need to, if because they may be at too high at risk for a relapse or too high at risk of homelessness because of you know underlying mental health conditions. So they can stay there. We just continue to provide wraparound services. But then we also have access to affordable housing, so people can you know once they get employed or they're able to support themselves and they get you know uh, rental subsidies because they're disabled or things like that, then we've got apartments for them uh, that they can just, you know, live in just like you and I, as long as they want and continue to pay the rent, right? And then we also have senior housing and then we also have veteran housing. So it's a very... uh, very uh, seamless, you know, uh, movement from one housing type to another housing type that really fits the needs. And the reason we had to do this, John, is because for so many decades, the people that we served faced major barriers to housing. You know, if you have a criminal justice background you can't, and you're a felon, you can't even get public housing, right? Yeah. So where are they supposed to go? Yeah. And, you know, in most places, in most families, you know, they don't have families to go home to. So, uh, and neither do veterans. In fact, veterans, I don't know if you know this, but statistically, there was a study that was done by USC and Loyola University a few years ago that showed that 40% of the veterans coming home actually don't have a permanent place to live. So they start out being homeless by living on somebody's couch, right, and hoping to find a place to stay. But then, you know, still have employment issues and things like that. So it is a, it is something that we work on and trying to prevent homelessness, too. So working with the VA, you know, huh. we're very vocal on the fact that, you know, if there's a veteran out there that immediately identifies with sleeping on a couch, they get referred to us so that there's a place where, by design, we're going to help them, you know, open doors to opportunities. My goodness. So when you mentioned 40 different properties that's what we're talking about when you're talking about these different sort of rungs or these different areas of support where you have the initial sort of that initial building but then we also have just affordable housing all of these different tiers that you've just sort of laid out that counts among the 40 different properties is that right right and when i say when i say developments uh, 40 real estate they range from 24 unit apartment buildings to 170 unit apartment buildings wow. Wow. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> Not including the 400-bed transitional housing facility. Okay, so you've just laid out really comprehensively how this is working at a safe haven and how things are structured there. How does this compare to other state programs or federal programs that are allegedly attempting to address some of the same issues that you are. Like, help us understand the landscape of what's actually out there, other than, yeah. say, a safe haven. Yeah, it's um, we are we are one of a kind uh, model. I mean, uh, I don't know of any other organization in the country or even the world. Then I've been invited to speak, you know, on international stages on this topic, you know, where they have hosted people from around the world. Uh, I did a, a, a speaking engagement in um, Colombia, Bogota, for example, where they brought in uh, countries, you know, leaders from other countries, you know, and we were specifically describing uh, the issue of criminal justice at the time. And, you know, the way the prison systems were at the the topic was really about incarceration and how prison systems were facing 
um, human rights violations around the world because they were all becoming overcrowded. But guess what? We win the prize because we have 24% of the world's prison population in America, yet we only make up 5% of the population of the world. So not the prize we want to win, right? But uh, when, you know, when they invited me, they actually had done, when they were planning to do this uh, conference, they had done a tour to a safe haven. They had contacted the American Parole and Probation Association. They had flown to Chicago and had been referred to us to come and see us as a model. Uh, they invited me to come in and speak at their prison conference, but yet I was the only organization that was there that did not necessarily represent a prison system, right? Huh. So the good news is I was really help, uh, excited to see the interest and the appetite around the world for our approach because we were able to really show them how we work at a safe haven to help people from preventing and preventing them, right, from entering the system in the first place, right? Because if people are suffering from underlying uh, conditions, right, behavioral health care conditions that inevitably are going to lead to an arrest, right, or inevitably going to lead to a prison sentence, then let's get them, you know, at that point where it's been identified in the healthcare system, right? Like, let's get them right away, get them into the programs. And also from a uh, diversion perspective, so uh, many people are concerned about the number of people that are sitting in jail cells right now, they can't make bail, right? So what we did about 10 years ago is we partnered with the largest jail in um, the country. It's called Cook County Jail. And mm-hmm. we uh, we talked to the, uh, the sheriff there and uh, suggested the idea that why don't we put people that can't make bail, that people can't, who can't be released because they, you have nowhere to, you know, discharge them to until court dates come up and they're probably going to be a very high flight risk, then uh, discharge them to our program while their court dates come up, put them on an electronic monitor, we'll take care of them. And while they're there, we won't waste their time. We'll get them into education and treatment, job training programs, court dates come up, they go in front of a judge. The judge sees that this individual completed a treatment program, completed a GED program. Now they've got a basis for reducing or eliminating uh, the sentence that they were facing, right? Because now they're, we're vouching for them too. We go to court with them, right? So that's a phenomenal program. So we're able to show them from a prevention, from a diversion. But also, since 1999, we've been working with the Department of Corrections to help uh, the reentry population. So as people are coming out of prison, uh, if they suffered, especially from underlying health condition, uh, behavioral health care conditions, and especially if they have nowhere to discharge to, which is a big reason why so many people are in prison is because they really don't have anywhere to send them to, then send them to our program. We're able to do the same thing. Get them, you know, the nutrition, get them the education, get them the treatment, get them the job training so they can learn how to live in recovery. And because of their backgrounds, they can't get jobs and they can't get uh, permanent housing. So one of the other things that we haven't even talked about is we actually started social enterprises, right? So uh, over 20 years ago, uh, we started um, having, uh, we now have a landscaping company right? Mm-hmm. That does most of the beautiful work that people know Chicago for right now. The tulips are blooming yeah. left and right. We do the rooftop at City Hall. We do some of the biggest, most beautiful marquee projects in the Chicago land area. So that's a great way to get people back into the workforce, get them a work ethic, get them paid and uh, help them stay at our program as long as it takes so they can build a nest egg. So now once we get them into an apartment, you know, now they actually have the money for a deposit if that's needed and they're able to, you know, live 
few months, you know, and not worry having that nest egg so that they can aren't living paycheck to paycheck, right? And just having that that monkey on their back, right, of, of their pressure. So, uh, and then after that, we have uh, we also do training. Some of the workforce training that we do is for welding, security guard training, uh, customer service and sales training, housekeeping training for the hospitality industry. We also have a great culinary arts program. So we supply, you know, uh, many of the restaurants and some of the top restaurants in Chicago with the workforce. Uh, but we also started it was catering business. So we actually teach people how to work in the field of catering. And um, and believe it or not, the person who runs my culinary and catering program is one of our success stories and is a phenomenal uh, program. We do some of the top uh events in Chicago, you know, uh, where they have charity events with the city and, you know, bring in the, the you know, the biggest, uh, most famous chefs, you know, we get to go, you know, and huh. be, be there and, and, uh, and show what we can do too. So, um, so then we also have a staffing business. So we realized that, you know, we had a, you know, we acquired this company and, uh, we realized that in 2009 that, you know, we needed another conduit, right? Like we can't employ everybody, but maybe there's some employers out there that are looking for people uh, to go to work. And how can mm-hmm. we create a business model that in, in all cases, the social enterprises actually allow for our organization to be sustainable yep. because they're producing revenue so that I'm not at the mercy of a contract cut or a government budget cut. Now I have businesses that help, uh, you know, close some of those gaps in terms of funding needs so that, you know, we lose a budget. Uh, for a job training program, guess what? We still have funding to put people into job training and jobs because of these revenues from these businesses. So we have a, the staffing business works with almost 200 businesses and providing them a workforce. So we place over a thousand people a year in jobs every year that were people that nobody else would hire. Yep. Uh, so it's really cool. Wow. And so on the staffing business, you, a safe haven becomes sort of a trusted entity to sort of screen some of these people. So businesses that are in need of new workers, they can come to you and see if there's somebody who would be a fit for the position, but you effectively serve as a as that initial sort of screen for some yes. of these folks. Yes. That's offend- We've even won awards from employers for uh, providing them with, you know, uh, incredible workforces. And I've got some businesses where my, uh, for the people that we referred uh, for entry level positions are now the hiring managers <laughs> from our organization. Wow. So they moved up the ranks, right? Yep. In fact, one of my stories in the book, which I told you, uh, I have an entrepreneur, entrepreneurs in here, talks about the fact that uh, uh, he has his own business and uh he actually trains people uh, to work in his field, and uh, he has a lot of people that are impl- former uh, residents of a safe haven. He was, and he trains them, and they're some of his top producers. You know, so I think that's another example of you know how our own uh, alums you know are able to you know keep that ladder you know uh, of success open to the people that are coming behind them. You know, so as they succeed, they open doors for uh, for future success stories. So it's amazing. So all of these different businesses, the staffing business, the landscape business, are these all sort of structured under a safe haven as the parent company or umbrella company? Yes. Huh? Yes. They're a nonprofit social enterprises. (laughs) You're kind of blowing my mind a little bit. This is (laughs) such a, I mean, you've been at this for a while, so it's not like you just drummed this up, you know, a year or two ago. So, you know, 1994, but, um, I love the kind of, I love the comprehensive approach to all of this. 
shifting gears a little bit, I would be curious to hear you talk a bit about some of the other cities, and we can keep this to the US or you're welcome to go outside of the US here if you like. But, you know, I think a lot of us have heard about the the homelessness problem around, say, Los Angeles or the developing situation in, say, Austin, Texas. Given everything that you've just laid out about what you're doing in Chicago, what are some of the things that you see and from your vantage point think would be helpful to implement, say, in L.A. or around Austin or something like that? If I was um, in their shoes, right, if I was in the shoes of a mayor of another city, um, I would absolutely leave no stone unturned when looking for best practices, you know, because I think that, you know, what they try to do uh, oftentimes is uh, start to do things from scratch, right? They come in and they're like, well, let's try this. <laughs> put 30 million into that and let's put 30 million into that. You know, and all, a lot of times, you know, it's again, it continues to stay siloed, right? So, you know, we want to, you know, solve hunger. So let's just go all in on offering food to everyone. Uh, you, we have to think uh, holistically, we have to think strategically, and we have to think about public-private partnerships, right? Like, how do we create uh, a mechanism so that we have the public sector putting their, you know, resources, aligning them with the private sector, you know, in terms of the, the local uh, leadership, you know, in the, in the business community. And then let's pull in the philanthropy community, right? And by that, by doing that, we're pulling our resources and we're aligning our efforts and we're leveraging those dollars, right, in a way that truly is going to maximize our impact. And you have to do it in a way that, again, is based on a proof of concept. You know, uh, it worries me because I see this everywhere I turn that, you know, so many good intentions are often misguided, and then we've got nothing to show for it, right? And oftentimes policies that sound good in theory uh, get passed, right? And then uh, not thinking about the, the unintentional consequences, right? So while we want to be compassionate, we also want to be pragmatic, right? And I think that it's not fair to the individuals that are in crisis not to have uh, a solution. There's a resources are absolutely there. And we God, you know, knows we have money in America, right? We wait, we, we either pay taxes, we're, we're generous, you know, businesses are, are all thinking corporate social responsibility right now. But what's missing is the, uh, the, uh, the consolidation of the alignment of interests in a way that was that is going to uh, scale best practices. So for me, it's like, you know, we've been doing this for a long time, right? We've got 2016. Trust me, we have made a lot of mistakes over the years, mm. right? We were like, oh, my God, you know, we don't want to see people go through the mistakes that we've made, right? There's something to be said with experience, right? There's something to be said with empirical data. There's something to be said with the anecdotal evidence, right? So follow that. And I think that, you know, if they uh, if if I was in their shoes, I would make sure that, you know, again, whether the this, the I have had. Uh, I told you I gave that conference, you know, that's that uh, presentation in Colombia, Bogota. I was blown away that I had some uh, university from Colombia, Bogota, come to America, was referred to come and see us, 
came and, you know, took the time to walk through our programs, meet some of the people that work there, meet some of the people that are going through the programs. I had no idea when they were visiting what the purpose of their visit was, but I'm always, you know, I'm an open book, right? Come on in, say what we're doing, right? And, um, and they liked it so much that I was the only person, only organization that was not a government-run uh, prison system that was invited to speak at this conference, right? So uh, after that conference, I had um, uh, an army of like uh, leaders from around the world visiting our organization. So one of the visitors that had previously come to a safe haven, actually, believe it or not, was the uh, the minister of justice from China, and this was about oh no seven eight years ago. Uh, I was just blown away. I'm like. I have never met <laughs> the leadership of Americas, you know, and here I have the minister of the biggest, most populated country in the world uh, was referred to us by a, a, a law firm that's an international law firm. And it just so happens that one of our former governors worked at this law firm and had referred him to come and stop and see our program in Chicago. So they came and spent like a day and a half uh, my catering team had a lot of fun because they actually got to make a really authentic Chinese meal for them, <laughs> and they passed the test, right? Wow. <laughs> so so anyway, um, after the presentation, after the tours, and they took the time to really look at a lot of our different sites, uh, the last parting question that he had for me blew my mind. He said, Nellie, he says, are you the best? <laughs> I thought, well, that's kind of a strange question. I go, you know, I'm going to ask, I'm going to ask you that question because I'm not the one that's doing my due diligence and visiting London and New York, you know, and all these different countries to try to find the best practices. So I want to know from you, what do you think about our program compared to everything else you've seen? And he came back and he blew my mind and said, Nelly, he says, you are the best model I have ever seen out of all the work that we've done looking for models around the world. And recently I read an article that China is doing a really good job addressing poverty. For all the bad things that we hear about them, I don't know where I read it, but at least it seemed to me that they seem to be designing a system. And, and they're not the only, he's not the only one. I've had other delegations come in from China, um, business leaders come in from China also to kind of see, and they've invited me many times, to be honest with you, when uh, Colombia had asked me to come and speak, I originally said no, because I felt that, you know, while I was flattered and honored, you know, for the invitation, I really wanted to focus on domestic. <laughs> like, look, I'm like, I really want our domestic, you know, uh, situation to get solved. To me, it's like the airplane theory, right? It's like, first, we got to put yep. our oxygen mask on before yep. we can go around and try to solve the world's problems. And, uh, but, you know, they made it so I couldn't say no for an answer. <laughs> so uh, it was very, you know, very flattering and very uh, generous. So I went and, uh, and I changed my mind. I realized that, you know, maybe, you know, the rest of the world is going to have to do it before we follow suit. I don't know. But it was definitely a very, very, uh, you know, open, uh, you know, world out there uh, looking for best practices. And like I said, I've had a parade of people coming from all over the world. In fact, yesterday, I got an email from someone that was at that conference. And this was I'm talking about a few years ago, uh, that just emailed me yesterday, that they want me to work with them and trying to do something in Guatemala. 
you know, and I'm like, well, you know, I don't know about that, but this is uh, this is the type of appetite that the rest of the world has for uh, for what they saw was uh, considered something that they could use too. And it's in humans, we're all the same, right? Like we all need to eat. We all need three meals a day. So while the world is so focused right now, Jonathan, on all the reasons why we're different, you know, I keep trying to press us to think about all the reasons why we're the same. And hopefully once we come to that conclusion that, you know, we all are human humans, right? And we all want what's good for us. We want good what's good for our families. And uh, and that's all we're asking for, right? For opportunities. And uh, and that's all we do at a safe haven again, is just non-judgmental, just like everybody has a different uh, level of success that they're gonna achieve. But you know, that's not up to us, that's up to them. We're just gonna get them, you know, the tools that they need to go after it. And so as you keep expanding the sort of scope and the comprehensiveness of what you all are working on, I find myself wanting to keep coming back and sort of crystallize things here. And so tell me if you think I've got this right or what I'm missing or leaving out. I mean, effectively, it sounds like you've created a real blueprint and a tiered system so that if someone has for almost any reason fallen out of a more stable environment when it comes to a when it comes to shelter and when it comes to work or when it comes to a substance abuse issue you almost are serving as a catch-all and you've got a way to if certain conditions are met you can implement them into this new system to help them work back up or get there for the first time and and you know bring them back into society and have a stable home life have a uh a place to live get them into the workforce and let them sort of go flourish if they have somehow fallen out of quote unquote, the system at some point. How'd I do? Mm-hmm. Phenomenal. Phenomenal. I mean, it's real. Um, it's meeting the people where they're at. And uh, again, just, you know, not giving them labels, you know, but getting them, um, you know, the services that they need in a way that they need them and uh, and at the time that they need them. So we try to put the cart before the horse so many times. You know, we're like, okay, this person's homeless, so let's put them into an apartment. Well, do you know something, Jonathan? Sometimes with uh, someone that's in crisis, that's the last thing you should do. One thing we've learned with the pandemic is isolation is a real thing. And, uh, and unfortunately, if you put someone who's dealing with substance abuse issues or depression, you know, you're exposing them to a situation that could be fatal. So I think that, you know, we've got to be thoughtful, you know, and again, I'm, I'm such an advocate that it's so important to get, you know, it's like a, a wellness check, right? Come into the uh, transitional housing center. Let's let you, let's let us, uh, let us uh, assess you on all levels so that, you know, we're not putting you out in mainstream society, leaving things undone, you know, so if you're, you know, we want to make sure your your mental and behavioral health care issues are addressed if you, you know, and everybody in our program, by the way, is suffering from some level of mental health issue, right? So whether you see their mild depression, you know, or complex dual diagnosed situations where they might need meds, you know, but they also need treatment, right? So it is the uh, whole gambit of uh, situations that people are dealing with. And that's why we say it's so important to take the time. And people do live at a safe haven uh, in our programs for as long as it takes for them to get back on their feet. Some people 
people they only really need us for 30 days you know they mm-hmm. come in they kind of got their their ideas and you know opportunities I mean if they belong to a union they're a plumber you know all they got to do is stay you know stay on that union uh, you know uh, plumber hall and keep calling until they get their gigs back you know and get back into the groove again you know while they you know maybe dealt with a subsidies issue or something like that you know people can come into our program and still go to work every day you know because they do have the subsidies and the good news is you know there's a lot of uh, people that are going uh, I mean I just spoke with someone yesterday who has a um, uh, a 17 year old right who has got serious mental health you know depression going on right now because of the pandemic he hasn't been going to school you know and things like that so she's beside herself and she said she had called for a counselor and um she's waiting she's on a four-week waiting list i mean these uh mental health professionals i mean it's very very hard to get an appointment with them and this is something that to me it's it's an er situation yeah. right so you know we can do things on an outpatient basis to prevent people from, end, from ending up in our program uh if that's necessary there's a lot one thing we haven't even t- touched on you know, but a big reason for homelessness, especially for youth, is the LGBT community, right? So as many of these youth, you know, are uh, getting kicked out of their homes or they're leaving, you know, uh, or aging out of the criminal justice, juvenile justice programs or foster care systems, we're taking them, you know, so that's another path, you know, and, you know, the sooner we can get them, the better, you know, but it is, uh, again, it's, it is a kind of a catch-all, you know, uh, but the good news is, you um, we're all human, you know, and uh, we have a lot in common and we have a multidisciplinary team of professionals that, you know, just we just have a system uh, that helps move people through our programs and stay as long as they want or need to as long as they're making progress. And um, we've got people that have been for 30 days or people that have been with us for 18 months, you know, so it does, it does vary. I mean, some people are dealing with the court system and are, you know, in and out of court for 18 months until their situations get resolved as, you know, another reason or, or women come through our programs out of the criminal justice system. And uh, 70% of the women in Illinois prison systems are moms, right? So their kids are somewhere, they're in the foster care system, or they're, you know, with a relative. So one of the beauties is we're able to reunite them under our care, and teach that mother parenting skills, but also get the kids uh, trauma informed care services if they're needed, you know, so the whole family is healing together. So again, it's, uh, it's hard to describe, uh, but it is something that I believe is something that every city needs, you know, so we are very eager to expand and replicate our model in other cities that are willing to take a chance uh, on something that actually has a is is a proof of concept. Uh, we may not work in a rural area, but in any urban city that has access to transportation and access to a, a vibrant, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, employment, you know, uh, environment. Uh, and you know, we build our own housing. So if they don't have enough housing, we can build it. Uh, so we do have. Uh, right now, we're expanding our footprint into Indiana, in Hobart, Indiana. We're building 75 units right now. Huh. And uh, the governor there, the mayor there of Hobart, Indiana, you know, very proactive in supporting, you know, what we're doing there. And, you know, so we're excited, you know, about that uh, opportunity to really be move beyond our borders. But I think the time is now. So as people are getting more educated and informed and concerned about the growing homeless problem and the opiate epidemic, please, you know, do your homework. And get a letter out to your leadership and say, hey, have you checked out a safe haven? Have you checked out maybe another program that you've heard of? But uh, make sure that, you know, while you're in the process of looking for ways to address homelessness and poverty and addiction in our communities, you know, uh, make sure you leave, you know, again, no stone unturned. You know, this is a once in a lifetime opportunity to help influence a paradigm shift. And uh, and I hope that, you know, 
uh, we make the right decision. There's a possibility here that a safe haven does just become more of an of a national entity, and you're just replicating what you've been doing in Chicago. Yeah. Absolutely. So it's funny because people people actually say uh, to me, they're like, "But Nellie, there's only one of you." Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, that's yeah. You know, how can you expand into other markets? There's only one of you. I'm like, well, thank God that uh, the organization doesn't depend on me being there every day, right? And you know, we have leaders in every department that you know are really you know experts in you know in their own right in everything that they do. So you know, I get to be the you know behind the scenes, you know, really the visionary and really the one that is uh, helping, uh, you know, create uh, more opportunities for the organization to grow. And we've been expanding since day one. I mean, if you go, you know, we're, we're in, um, in suburban locations too. So we're, you know, we're on the south side, the west side, the north side, and we're also in suburban organizations and uh, suburban uh, areas throughout the Chicagoland area. And uh, each and every community is like a city in itself, right? It's got its own leaders, its own city council members, its own, you know, community that you've got to accommodate you know uh, their needs so um you know I, I, I always try i always go back i go i wonder if anybody asked ray crack you know hey there's only one one of you ray how can you open up another mcdonald's yeah. <laughs> you know or conrad hilton hey conrad there's only one of you how can you open up another hotel yeah. it's like to me that's such a silly question i'm like haven't you all heard about you know organizations that didn't exist or models that didn't exist and uh, that all of a sudden are prolific and they're everywhere wouldn't it be nice that in every city that when someone fell on hard times, that they didn't have to think twice about where they should go. go. Right? Absolutely. What if they said, hey, you know, um, you know, so-and-so has a problem with some abuse and, you know, and, you know, they're, you know, they're going to lose their job and, you know, why don't we just have them go to a safe haven and, you know, and that's where they know what to do. And the good news is that, you know, it is at no cost to anyone that comes through our programs. And we have had people that have come through our programs that have flown in from other states like Connecticut and Florida that had gone through their children's college uh, funds to pay for treatment at $30,000 a month. And they're only dealing with the substance abuse issue. And I keep, uh, I keep saying, if there's other barriers that are, this individual is dealing with, then we're only going to continue to see them relapse over and over and over again, right? So, I mean, I had a family that came from a very wealthy community in the Chicagoland area that was walking through my building the other day. And I asked them, you know, why, you know, they were there and, you know, what it was that they needed. And uh, they said that, you know, they had a son who was suffering from substance issues since he was 15 years old, and he's now 25 years old. And they have sent him to some of the top uh, treatment programs around the country. And inevitably, when he comes home, he hooks up with his old friends and he's back where they started. Right. And uh, so they were beside themselves. And I said, well, I'm sorry to hear that. But, you know, I'm happy that you're here. Where is he? I'm kind of looking for the kid. Like, where, you know, where is this kid? So we can start to help him right away. And they're like, well, you know, the problem is he's now in prison. And, you know, they're asking for an address to release him to, and we don't want him to come back home because we know that he's just going to end up, you know, in the same situation and uh, and we're looking for alternatives. And I'm like, well, good for you. Good news that you're here because we happen to have a contract with the prison system that will allow for him to get referred to our program. So what you need to do is go to the Department of Corrections and let them know that a safe haven is willing to take them into our programs. So 
for them, it was, again, you know, an answer to their prayers. They had pretty much exhausted, you know, all of their uh, available resources for this. And to me, um, you know, that's not just happening to them, but it's happening to families around the country that are mortgaging their homes and, uh, and paying their last dollar to try to help. I mean, what's a kid worth, right? What's a uh, child worth? You know, you will spare no expense and uh, an insurance, you know, uh, doesn't pay unlimited um, funds all the time for all the rehab treatment programs that people need. So people are mostly paying out of pocket if they can afford to do that. And we want to save people from having to spend their money that way. There are resources. We all pay taxes uh, that are available. And we just have to help influence that public policy, uh, you know, and those resources at every government level to be allocated in a way that's accountable, in a way that's truly producing outcomes and results. Because that's what we found back in 1994, going back and circling back to day one, when we were looking at the data and we were looking at the way the money was flowing towards building criminal justice systems that were going to inevitably fill up those prisons with people that, you know, I believe shouldn't have been there in the first place, um, you know, and then looking for some kind of uh, return on investment, right? Like, how is this going to help this individual rehabilitate? How are they going to become, come back into the society and be productive members of society and pay taxes, right? And, uh, and hopefully um, break that cycle. What we found was the exact opposite. It's like, well, once someone has a criminal justice background, they're unemployable and they can't get housing and they can't support their kids. Mm -hmm. And guess who owns all of that? We do, right? Because now we have to subsidize every facet of their lives for the rest of their lives in many cases if they don't get help uh, and their children's lives, right? Because now these kids are are, our responsibility in the foster care system. And if they can't, you know, you know, get out of that, you know, vicious cycle that that family caught them, got caught in, then again, you know, we're going to continue. To, and I've seen it firsthand just by knowing people personally who grew up that way and ended up in the system. And it almost becomes like a rite of passage to get your own public housing voucher. You know, it's like, wait, you know, it's like you're, you're a young adult and you're healthy and you're smart. You know, it's like, why not get a job? You know, so and, you know, we understand people are going to need help some uh, for the rest of their lives. And I'm, you know, the first one is to want to support that. But, you know, I believe that we all have something uh, in terms of uh, talent and gifts that we were naturally born with and can be developed. And uh, and we're missing we're missing all that talent. And that's that's our loss. So if you were granted one or two wishes where you could just today, right now, change a certain piece of legislation is there some, do you have an immediate answer of like, yes, I would automatically want to change this or that particular either state law or federal law? And then I'm going to have a follow-up question to this. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there's so much. Um, huh. you know, we I need like take a 50 back. wishes? Yeah, 50 wishes. Okay. Yeah, because I can say one, but then that's going to create a lot of ripple effects in terms of, okay, and then this needs to happen and this needs to happen and this needs to happen to create the perfect, you know, scenario. But um, A Safe Haven was, uh, was, grant, was awarded by HUD uh, in 2008. Uh-huh. Um, there was a, a national competition uh, by HUD uh, to find, you know, organizations that, you know, they considered best practices. And... Um, 
Safe Haven was named uh, one of the top organizations in the country, and it was declared what they call an Envision Center, right? The idea of the Envision Center was to me like a game changer. Like what the Envision Center concept was about was really working with all of the federal agencies, like 22 federal agencies with HUD and what they call the Memorandum of Understanding and say, we're all going to agree uh, to uh, support an Envision Center, right? So the, in my mind, I'm processing this and going, oh my God, we're finally, we always talk about every election, everybody talks about, we got to break down those silos because they all work independently and then blah, 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 and it's very inefficient and it doesn't work and we know all that, right? But when it comes down to it, they never do it. Right. So the prison system has its own budget, its own, you know, delivery system in terms of how they spend their money. So does SAMHSA, which is the Department of Substance Abuse. So does um, uh, the VA. So does, you know, uh, the Department of Justice. You know, all these agencies have their own, you know, funding uh, streams, oftentimes with the same objectives, right, of serving the same people. But they don't correlate and share information, right? And they don't share resources. So when they named the Envision Center, it was to me, in my mind, it was like, okay, we're finally breaking down the silos. We're actually going to have a demonstration project that's going to allow us to really show how we take a little money from Department of Labor, a little money from HUD, a little money from Department of Justice, a little money from, you know, SAMHSA, all these different agencies, and show them how we can actually take that money, uh, track it, spend it on individuals as needed, and at the end of the day, allow us to leverage those public resources, connect them with private resources like we described, and show how we're able to move people very seamlessly and very efficiently through a model that at the end of the day is going to lead them to their highest level of independence. And I was all down for that. I'm like, yeah, let's get them funds. Let's track it. Let's measure it. Let's show what kind of ROI we can, you know, uh, show our taxpayers and our, you know, our supporters, our private funders. And um, unfortunately, that was never implemented the way that I wanted to see it implemented. But that's an example of something that happened. Many, many laws People don't realize this. Many laws get passed, but when it comes down to implementation, it never happens. So in 2008, I'm going to give you one more example. In 2008, uh, Congressman Patrick Kennedy passed a a law called uh, the Wellstone uh, Wellstone Bill, I think it was called, uh, which allowed for mental purity, which meant health insurance will cover the cost of mental health on par with with uh, physical health. So, for example, if you have diabetes, you don't have an insurance policy that says, "Hey, you know, if you pass the threshold of spending twenty five thousand dollars on uh, treating your diabetes, after that, you're you know, we're cutting you off." No insurance company does that. But when it came to mental health, that's exactly what they did. If you go to treatment and rehab, you know, and you're you spend twenty five thousand dollars in your first treatment program after twenty eight days, you're done. So there's that cap it. Right. So what that bill allowed for uh, allowed to happen was for insurance companies to pay for unlimited, you know, treatment just like they would for physical. Right. So you don't you don't differentiate. Remember, at the beginning of the conversation, I said the World Health Organization and the American Medical Association declared substance abuse a disease. Right. So it's a disease. So um, 
However, that did pass. We even flew to uh, Washington, D.C. It was the middle of the recession and nobody was paying attention to this bill, but I knew it was like a big deal. So we flew ourselves to D.C. and actually hosted an event to give Patrick Kennedy an award and said, Mm. thank you for passing that bill. That's a game changer. But it never got implemented. Mm. You know, so that would imagine how many lives would have been saved you know, if we had implemented and focused on that with insurance. But, you know, it, it, and again, it, without the right systems in place, maybe it would not have worked, you know. But again, today, you know, we are uh, we are uh, more aware, you know, that this is an issue. And now there's pressure and now insurance companies are being required. In fact, I've passed bills myself and sponsored bills to make that happen and make it a, so that private health insurance does cover not just the cost of treatment in general or medical assisted treatment if that's needed, but also the cost of our services, right? So that nobody with insurance should end up needing to be homeless to get into our programs. Come when you're still employed. Come when you have insurance. So that way you have access to all the different services that we offer before it gets catastrophic. So that's uh, that's just a, an example. So both, you know, implementing uh, laws like mental parity, which is out there, and requiring private health insurance to, you know, do what they're supposed to do, right? Um, and then also, um, you know, implementing the uh, the idea of what I just described as an envision center, saying, hey, maybe we don't, you know, make it national yet, but. Do it at least as a t- as a template for for a demonstration project for a year, eighteen months, two years, three years. But collect the data and track it and prove to yourself that this can be done. We must break down the silo. And I think those are the two things I would suggest: is if we pass laws that make sense like that, let's implement them. And yep. also, if we have you know the ability to do a demonstration project to show a proof of concept, because once you have that proof of concept, then we can roll it out around the country. And um, I say we do it anyway. But even if they had to, uh, you know, for for the purposes of you know justification to do it on a smaller scale. Uh, and even if a city invited us to do it in their city on a smaller scale, just to kind of get, you know, a feel for it, you know, we don't have to come in there and start from scratch. We, we immediately pull in partners from the community to help us accomplish many of the goals that we uh, we need to accomplish. So if there's job developers out there, workforce, you know, we'll partner with them, you know, so that we're not replicating or, you know, uh, creating redundancy, but really harnessing, you know, all of the uh the opportunities that are in place so that, you know, we're really, truly being ultimately efficient and seamless for the end user. Because the last thing you want to do is get someone who's in crisis and put them through a tremendous amount of bureaucracy and, bur- and burden them with that. And, um, and and that's what our hope is, you know. So I don't know if that's more than one or two wishes. Mm. <laughs> but, that's a great answer. But, you know, I- My understanding, so please correct me if I have this wrong, that Us Safe Haven is organizing this global virtual run walk to end homelessness. And the dates that I've seen are July 17th to July 25th for this year, 2021. So uh, with the pandemic, you know, it's our 11th year of doing the run walk to end homelessness. Uh, But with the pandemic, you know, we really, really did not want to cancel our run. Uh, I mean, everything was shutting down the Irish parade. I mean, everything was going down. And I was like, no, we can't because it was our 10th year anniversary. Uh, So we decided like within three weeks of of the run day to pivot and convert it into a virtual run walk to end homelessness. And um, 
And we were so proud that last year was actually our most successful run walk to end homelessness mm-hmm. ever from a fundraising and from a participation perspective. We had runners that signed up from the Dominican Republic, from Switzerland, from mm-hmm. Seattle, Washington, from LA, from New York to Boston. Harvard had a team. You know, it was just so cool uh, that, you know, while many people, you know, used to fly in even to Chicago to be a part of it, that there were every corner, you know, that heard about the run of the planet was was able to, you know, just basically sign up online uh, and, you know, you download an app and uh, with the app, we kind of just uh, give you some props. You could sign up for a 5K, 10K, half marathon or marathon. Uh, we decided that since it's virtual and it's global, that why limit it to just doing it one morning? Why not give people a whole week to do it? You know, so if you're not a runner and you want to do your first 5K, hey, you can even do a 1K a day yep. you know, and get your 5K in, you know. Yep. So we made it as easy as possible. Uh, I know that, you know, I've gotten to know a lot of my neighbors during the pandemic because when I was working out of my house, right, I was able to meet people walking down the street that were getting out of the house and getting the kids out of the house away from the screen. And it's something that you could do as a family. It's something you could do with your coworkers. It's something you can do with your friends. It's something you could do alone. And uh, it doesn't matter. You can do a 5K a day or, you know, a marathon, you know, and, and have your best time ever. You know, so it's completely individualized. But the important thing is that you do it, yeah. right? So we ask people to, to take a selfie, you know, tag us. And, uh, and let's keep uh, getting people excited about the idea of running and walking, you know, as a great way to, you know, clear your head and get some good fresh air and mental health, but also as a way to really uh, raise awareness and support uh, for empowering people uh, out of homelessness so that, you know, at the end of the day, you know, we're changing, we're transforming lives, but we're also transforming a system. All the proceeds go to A Safe Haven and go straight to help people uh, that are homeless uh, right now. And uh, and the need is great. You know, the pandemic, Jonathan, is, uh, ex- you know, we're experiencing a surge in demand. And uh, th- there are studies are showing right now that we're probably going to see about a 40 percent increase in homelessness. And uh, and I know, you know, all you have to do is have eyes and look outside and see that the numbers are rising. And uh, and it's not your imagination. I mean, it really is, you know, as good as work that we're doing at a safe haven our one of our biggest challenges is constantly the need to build capacity so we're in the process right now of building two um, veteran housing projects you know and um and we're you know we're bidding on you know building a lot more and uh hopefully we'll be in your neighborhood soon <laughs> you know no matter where you are um uh, and, and you can make that happen, you know, just by calling your mayor and calling your governor and saying, hey, check this organization out, uh, buy the book, get to know some of the yeah. people, you know, and uh, if you don't believe it, you know, after reading that book, I guarantee you will. Nellie, thank you so much. This has been a terrific conversation and thank you for everything you've been doing, you know, since at least 1994 uh, to try to address these big, important issues. And uh yeah, I really I really appreciate this. I really hope that we will see the blueprint and model that you have created in Chicago. I hope we see this expanding across the country and around the world. What's the best place for people to go if they want to just learn more about a safe haven, maybe learn more about how they can get involved? Uh, go to asafehaven.org. 
go to the website, um, again, asafehaven.org. Uh, and, you know, the first step, if you want to do something with us, is just sign up for that run. Uh, it, it does have a separate website. You can get to it from our website, uh, again, asafehaven.org, or you can go straight to the run website, which is runtoendhomelessness.org. And it's all spelled out, runtoendhomelessness.org. And, uh, and start a team. Um, and hopefully uh, we'll uh, get to see your pictures. You do get a really cool, by the way, many people sign up. I swear they're just doing it for the T-shirt, <laughs> but that's okay too. Uh, and then you also get a really cool gator. So hopefully, um, you know, we'll see you sporting that T-shirt. And uh, and it's a great conversation piece that people will ask you about, you know, what that run what, what meant to you and uh, why you did it. And hopefully you'll get uh, a T-shirt for for the whole family when you sign up. So mm-hmm. it's um, it's something that, you know, I think is uh, just another way to help us, you know, continue to raise awareness and support throughout the year. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks so much for everything you're doing. Thanks for this conversation. And uh, I look forward to doing it again down the road sometime. Sounds good, Jonathan. And uh, make sure you check in with me the next time you're in Chicago visiting the family. I would love to. I would love to. Already, <laughs> I, thanks for the official invitation because I was just going to yep. invite myself. So oh my now God, I, no. Open door. Let me know anytime. And thank you to all your listeners for uh, for hanging in there with us and sticking you know, with this conversation. I think it's uh, it's so important. I know it's on the top of your minds, you know, in terms of what's happening. And the good news is, you know, there are solutions. And uh, by working together, we can absolutely get a lot more done together. And, uh, and uh, be safe, everyone. Hmm. Take care, Nellie. Have a good run. Well, that's it for this edition of Off the Couch. I want to say thanks to Nellie for the terrific conversation. Thanks to the strikingly handsome Justin Bob for producing this episode. And thanks to you for listening. From all of us here in Gunnison and Crested Butte, Colorado, please be safe. Please take good care of yourself and everybody else. Please keep moving forward. And we will talk to you again real soon.